0: Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a
1: boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash.
0: Hey, guys, and welcome to episode 50 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Johnny FD. I'm here with Sam Marks.
1: Johnny, hey guys, welcome back. Today we're going to cover a really popular topic, and maybe one that might we even say was an early inspiration for this podcast. We have on Andy Rockcliffe, who's the CEO of Wealthfront.
0: What's crazy is when I first started investing in Wealthfront a couple of years ago, I never thought for a second we we would get to talk to him live and ask him all the questions that you know that we want to know, just as personal investors.
1: Well, Wealthfront is a pioneer both in robo-advisories, but also I think in just bringing technology to investing in a really mainstream way. So we were both investing in Wealthfront before we started the podcast, but that was one of the really stirring technologies and advancements in the space that made us think maybe there's a better, smarter way to invest. We really need to get on the phone and start talking to some people that know what they're doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think honestly, if it wasn't for companies like Wealthfront pioneering you know modern investing with technology this podcast wouldn't exist because we would just be investing in traditional ways and you know with the um, in mutual funds or maybe index funds um you know or you're having financial advisors wealthfront was really one of the the first tools that that I signed up for that was like okay you know this is just so much easier than me doing it myself
1: yeah for sure i mean i i've definitely had a good experience with wealthfront i know it's been beating my my do it yourself accounts, which we'll dive into. And also gives me the peace of mind about account management and fund management, which right now, for me, having a little bit more space to think and do things non business related is a really big value add. So, like you, I'm really looking forward to diving into this with Andy and um, taking away the commentary afterwards.
0: Yeah, definitely. Because I have my Wealth Fund account open right now. So, as soon as this interview is over, <laughs> I think me and you are going to dive in deep with both our personal accounts and hopefully we'll answer some of the, the questions like what is the difference
1: between the money way to return and the time way to return and which one should we actually be looking at? Enjoy this episode, guys. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we have on the show a pioneer and a veteran, none other than Andy Rockliffe, the CEO and co-founder of Wealthfront. Andy, thanks so much for joining us on Invest Like a Boss.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: We're looking forward to this, man. I know Johnny, my co-host, and I are both investors in Wealthfront. We have a lot of listeners that are investors. So we're really excited to get you on and just to hear more. And I know you've done so much in the world of finance. Could you just take us through a little bit of your background and your transition into becoming an entrepreneur, essentially, from a VC?
2: Sure. Well, I started in the venture capital business while I was going to business school at Stanford Graduate School of Business uh, back in 1983. I went full-time in 84, did it until 2005. Uh, at that point, I retired from the venture business to uh, to basically give back. I've been incredibly fortunate in my career, and I wanted to try to give back to those who helped put me in this position. So I started teaching at Stanford, and I went on the board of trustees of my undergrad alma mater, University of Pennsylvania. My wife and I started a cancer research funding initiative as well. But that afforded me the opportunity to join Penn's Endowment Investment Committee, mm-hmm. where I'll become the chairman on July first. So I think Penn has the seventh largest university endowment in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I started Wealthfront out of something that happened at, at one of the Penn Endowment meetings, an insight that I had, and that was in 2008. And we pivoted into our current business in 2011. I had never intended to be an entrepreneur. I was very happy retiring to give back. Yes. I loved every minute of my venture career, but uh, it happened by accident.
1: I love that you're teaching at Stanford. Is that something that you're still actively doing?
2: Yes, uh, <laughs> I I hadn't thought that I was going to be the CEO again, so I committed <laughs> to teach this spring, and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to make the time to do everything. But our quarter just started yesterday.
1: Oh, wow. Well, the time commitment's going to be tough, but I'm sure that's a nice balance of uh, being able to, to work with such a young and, and aspirational group of students there.
2: It is wonderful.
1: Well, Andy, investing is such a broad topic, but just because you've been around it for so long, are there any kind of core or general principles that you really believe in and that you feel others should always adopt with regards to maybe market timing or diversification?
2: Well, let me give you a general perspective. Uh, and that is that, that the way, uh, and, and it's something that I learned from my investment idol, a fellow named Howard Marks, who founded Oaktree uh, Capital. Oaktree, I think, is the premier distressed debt investor in the world. And Howard Marks is as well known for his quarterly letter to his investors as he is for his fantastic returns. But all of his letters are premised on the same uh, framework that he applies to investing, And that is that on one dimension, it's a two by two matrix. On one dimension, you can either be right or wrong, and the other dimension, consensus. Well, obviously, if you're wrong, you don't make money. But what most people don't realize is you don't make money if you're right in consensus, which is where we're almost comfortable. The way you make significant money is by being right in non-consensus. And that was the core to our success at Benchmark as venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. The challenge is you have to be really knowledgeable and have an information advantage to be right and non-consensus. Mm. So as someone who doesn't have an information advantage, uh, what I recommend is passive investing, where you invest in a diversified portfolio of index funds because the data is pretty clear that it's almost impossible for even the professionals to persistently outperform the market.
1: I love it and I think that's been of course the core of of Wealthfront and how many I mean so many people have changed from using traditional financial advisors including myself where I had a really bad experience with a a manager at a big bank that had too much discretion over my account and into Wealthfront. So it's great to hear that your perspective on active managers versus passive ones
2: one of the things that, one of the biggest issues that I teach my students is that when evaluating a business, it can be really dangerous to project your experience onto that business. Uh-huh. As an uh-huh. example, my wife uh, didn't trust Airbnb. We're both 58. And so for someone of our generation, Airbnb can seem a little bit crazy, And and I had recommended my daughter, who's now 25, use it when she was looking for an apartment in LA for a summer internship. And uh, my wife was pretty much against it until she observed the experience my daughter had. Now she thinks it's fantastic. So relating this back to Wealthfront, our primary client is someone who can't afford a financial advisor. So you're in a great position. But the vast majority of our clients are people who can't afford the minimums associated with traditional advisors. So we're focused on an audience of people under 40 who don't have enough money to afford the traditional advisor. We're just as appropriate for the people with an advisor, but we're really not focused on trying to steal people away from advisors. We're trying to address the people who can't afford access.
1: Very good. Very interesting as well. And just going back to my own personal situation, if I had put money in Wealthfront three years back instead of with an adv- a traditional advisor, I would have been up. I don't even know. It would have been you know in, probably in the thirty percent range compared to a flat account. Uh, and I don't. Th- I just think going back on what you said, I don't think they had an information advantage. I think they acted like they did have an information advantage. But yeah, but but they really didn't. They were just. Probably told what to uh, to put the money into, and that's a longer story. But you know, <laughs> Wealthfront is. I, I'm curious how you pick your your funds and ETFs to put money into, because you guys must be one of the biggest buyers of a lot of these funds anywhere in the world. I would think.
2: Well, we're getting to be. I'm not sure we're the largest yet. Mm-hmm. You know, some institutions like the Harvard Endowment are heavy users of index funds and mm-hmm. ETFs. And they have uh, twenty billion under management, so that's a lot more than us. But I think we're getting there, getting there, yeah how, how do we pick them? So what we do is we we try to find the best index to represent each asset class, and as uh, some people might not realize, uh, you're you have a better chance of maximizing your risk adjusted return, which is the critical thing to focus on. Over time, if you diversify across asset classes, and an asset class is a grouping of a particular kind of security like U.S. stocks or foreign developed markets or emerging markets or real estate or natural resources, Mm -hmm. but uh, you're much better off diversifying because you never know which asset class is going to perform the best. So having a mixture of them, actually, especially ones that are uncorrelated, maximizes your risk-adjusted return. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do is figure out which ETF best represents each asset class. And so that means we look at not only the fee, but the liquidity, because if there's an ETF that has a great fee, but there's not much trading in it, our purchases, daily purchases of those ETFs can move the market, Mm -hmm. which can have a negative impact on your performance. We also look at tracking error, how much difference is there from the index that it follows, and even their policies about uh, about short uh, lending their securities to short sellers as a way to lower their their fees. So, and then finally, a really important one is what has been their behavior about lowering their fees over the time. So for example, Vanguard. Generally, has the lowest fee products, and they lower their fees over time as they have more assets against which to amortize their fees. Other people, like BlackRock, do the opposite. Now, they have uh, they've recently announced lowering the fees on their ETFs to eat levels sometimes below Vanguard. But what most people don't realize is they're the market share leader in ETFs because they started before anybody else. Mm-hmm they didn't lower their fees at all over time to the point that they're well in excess of Vanguard's fees. But given that they're now losing market share to to Vanguard, what they did was they created a new share class of ETF in each of their asset classes, in many of their asset classes, to compete with Vanguard. Mm -hmm. So whereas the old ETF charges 0.2% and Vanguard charges 0.05%, they created a new ETF at .04, but meanwhile, the poor suckers who were in the old ETF didn't get the fee break. Hmm. So whereas Vanguard lowers the fees for everybody, BlackRock didn't because they knew that the owners of their old ETF likely had gains, embedded gains, yeah. and if they were to sell the old ETF for the new lower-priced one, they'd incur a gain and therefore a tax. Now, if they had lowered the fee to everyone, that would have really impacted their revenue and profits. Vanguard doesn't care about that because they're a not-for-profit. BlackRock is a publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. So BlackRock screwed all of their investors by not giving them the best fee. But now they tell everyone, hey, we've got a fee lower than Vanguard's. We don't want to move to BlackRock because we think they're going to screw us when they have the chance.
1: Hmm. That's a segment that I'm definitely going to look forward to re-listening to a couple of times. That was very interesting stuff.
2: Well, we're about to write a blog post that, that specifically explains this. It's something. It's part of the unseemly world uh-huh. of the investment business.
1: I look forward to it. Well, if Wealthfront ever got big enough, could it just create its own index funds to emulate the current ones you're investing in, or is that totally not of interest to you guys?
2: Well, we could, but we would rather benefit from the tremendous work that Vanguard does and Mm -hmm. focus our software development efforts on value-added services. Today, we offer more services than than just about anyone else, and we group a number of the investment services under the moniker Passive Plus. So we're huge believers in passive investing, but we're able to use some rule-based strategies to actually improve uh, people's after-tax returns. And examples of that are things like dividend-based rebalancing versus buying and selling stocks. This is something that people can't—that real—it's too complicated to do other than in software. Mm-hmm. Tax-loss yes. harvesting, direct indexing, and we'll soon introduce some additional services that will improve upon that.
1: Looking forward to that. And you know, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence artificial intelligence is eating software and all this stuff. I think it's kind of a a very loosely used word and I think in a lot of places that people say there is artificial intelligence there's really not it's just more like smart analytics and things like that. Would you consider Wealthfront actually utilizing artificial intelligence in any format?
2: Well, what we currently use is machine learning, mm-hmm. which is a subset of artificial intelligence and machine learning really is a fancy term for advanced statistics. So can you train your your system to look for inferences that are consistent? And we currently use machine learning to better classify expenses as part of our financial planning experience called PATH. So we, uh, a couple of months ago, introduced the first true financial planning experience in software other people have partnered with financial planners we actually think we saw again software can do a better job at routine tasks than people can and financial planning is a great example of a routine task so if you want uh to if you are lucky enough to afford the investment minimums associated with better financial planners You'll sit down with a planner to be interviewed, but almost all of the interview questions that you're asked by the planner are just inputs they need for a commercial software package that they all use. Mm -hmm. And then they go back to their office. They input the answers to the interview questions. They schedule a meeting two weeks hence to share those results. You then edit those results. They go back to their office enter again, maybe another two weeks later, you have another meeting. In contrast, what we do, and by the way, your answers to the questions are probably not going to be terribly accurate. If I were to ask you how much you spend and save every month, I bet you don't know with great accuracy. But with the availability of application programming interfaces, what we can do is, with your permission, connect to your financial accounts to to avoid having to ask you the questions. We can just get the data automatically. And then we can deliver the results immediately. There's no need for another meeting. And then you can iterate on those results with our interactive software. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we think. And you can do it while you're standing in line waiting for a coffee because it's all available on mobile devices as well. So we think that's an example of software doing a better job than people. And the machine learning comes in to... Classify your different expenses that we find in your bank and brokerage accounts, so that we can more accurately give you uh, answers.
1: So when it comes to rebalancing and things like that, there, that's not necessarily machine learning. That's just
2: that's, that's just software, right? That's just soft. That's just logic. Yeah. So uh, you know, the funny thing is, asset allocation is an absolute commodity. You know, it, it, the methodology that we use and almost all financial advisors use uh, was created literally in the late 1950s and won the Nobel Prize in 1990. It's called Modern Portfolio Theory or Mean Variance Optimization. Yeah, that's not that's not artificial intelligence. The way that we evaluate your risk. Well, uh, that's something that we can use some neural nets to do a better job with that. And the way that we characterize your spending, we can apply machine learning to that. The actual best part is very straightforward.
1: Was the modern portfolio theory or was it the efficient market theory that basically said you can't really beat the market?
2: Well, they're related to one another. So first came efficient uh, market theory that says that you can't outperform the market. And modern portfolio theory came up with a methodology to determine how to achieve the maximum return for every level of risk, assuming that you can't outperform the market. Got it. You combine asset classes to come up with that set of portfolios that are ideal. Mm-hmm.
1: So Wealthfront is, is kind of founded on the on the concept of the efficient market theory, right? You, we're not trying to beat Absolutely. the market in a sense. We're just trying to be it in the smartest way
2: possible. Well, you no, know, we're trying to deliver the maximum returns uh, that the market affords you, that index funds afford you, and then add value through minimizing the taxes that you pay. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about the importance of reducing your fees. Our mm-hmm. chief investment officer, Bert Malkiel, wrote a book 40 years ago that really launched the concept of an index fund. His book is called A Random Walk Down Wall Street, and what Bert Found, what Bert uh, shared in his book that was radical at the time was that it's almost impossible to outperform the market. He actually had an experiment for which the book was famous, where he uh, had a bunch of chimpanzees throw darts at a Wall Street Journal page that listed stocks to pick <laughs> stocks. And he compared the performance of the chimpanzees throwing darts to professional money managers. And the chimps consistently outperformed the professional money managers, to prove his point.
1: I think I remember hearing that a long time ago. It was, it was somebody that was on CNBC, right, that they outperformed?
2: No, no. This is against a group of people. Oh, and and okay. the experiment has been run many times since. The Wall Street Journal, I think, runs it every single year. Okay. So Bird found that that it's almost impossible to consistently outperform the market. There are people – I think there's a study – that 9% of mutual funds outperform in any one year, but only about 5% do so over five years. It's an incredibly small percentage of mutual funds.
1: Yeah, not very good odds.
2: So, So what he found was that if you can't outperform the market, you should not try, but rather focus on the three things where you can add value, where you do have some control. And those three things are diversify to minimize risk, Minimize your fees because anything you pay in fee comes, uh, lowers your, your net return and minimize taxes. Now, there's been a ton of discussion about minimizing fees on blogs or in books, but the analysis that we've done says that actually your tax savings can be three times the amount of fees that you might be able to save. So we've really focused on using software to minimize the fees our clients incur. The taxes our clients incur, excuse
1: me. So I'll give the listeners a, a real world example. I just logged into my Wealthfront an account and I have tax loss harvested almost $10,000, 9993 I believe that since my account is open. So I thank you for that. That's beautiful. And then so the, value,
2: the value of that is your tax rate times that. So that's probably in excess of $4,000.
1: That I, and that's essentially deferred, right? Like, because that's kind of getting pushed down, or?
2: Well, actually, no, this is one of the things that's misunderstood about tax loss harvesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, The value comes from two things. One is what's known as tax rate arbitrage. I'll explain that term. And the other is through the time value of money from deferring the payment of the tax. Mm. So when we harvest a loss, you can apply that against your short term capital gains that you might incur elsewhere, and up to $3,000 of ordinary income each year. Well, those two things are taxed at ordinary tax rates. And for you, that's probably in excess of 40%. Now, that's going to lower the basis on your stock. And so when you sell the replacement securities that have a lower cost basis Than the ones that were replaced, and I can explain tax house harvesting in a minute, you'll ultimately sell them at a long-term capital gain rate, which is probably going to cost you 20%. So there's a delta on the tax rate from which you benefit right now, 40%, and the tax rate you're going to pay in the future, which is only 20%. So there's a combination of the value uh, results from a combination of the difference in the tax rates and the fact that you deferred paying a tax for a number of years. So what were the what were the fees that you paid on that account from which you got about $4,000 of benefit? The
1: fees? I'll bet you it was less than
2: – the fees that you've incurred over that time period.
1: Well, through through Wealthfront?
2: Yeah, through Wealthfront.
1: Yeah. So that would be what, 0. 0.25 or yeah, 25 basis points, right?
2: Right. And so I'll bet you it was less than an eighth of the taxes we saved you. Mm-hmm. So I wrote an article – uh, a couple of months ago, called, uh, if you like Vanguard, you'll love Wealthfront. Many people ask us, well, if you use Vanguard index funds, then why do I need to pay you another quarter of a percent to manage it for me? Can't I do that myself? And our answer is, well, we add value in lowering your taxes. And on average, the amount of taxes we- that you save is probably 8x the fee that we charge. Right so we weigh more than cover the fees that we charge our clients
3: right
1: and well with a, finan- a traditional financial advisor the tax loss harvesting on the level that Wealthfront is doing it in an automated fashion would be almost impossible right like the only way that Wealthfront is able to do it is through automation and, uh, of the software to, because it's it could be done pretty rapidly and in, in, in high volumes correct
2: exactly we can do it, we can look for the losses to harvest daily So what what the higher-end financial advisors do, so this is a small subset of financial advisors, is they might do tax-loss harvesting, but they only do it once a year at year-end. They can only afford, because it's so time-intensive, they can look at your portfolio at year-end and see if you have any losses, unrecognized losses. So the value of doing it once a year versus daily is about 40% of what we deliver. So to be fair to the people who do it, they can generate value, but it's only about 40% on average according to our simulations of what we're able to deliver. Gotcha.
1: Andy, while I'm in the account, there's two terms that we wanted to clear up for the listeners, and that is time-weighted return versus money-weighted return. And my time-weighted return right now is 23.5% which is a nice, beautiful green number. Thank you. And then my money-weighted return is 18.3%, but I actually don't know where my, my net real return would be in comparison to those two numbers.
2: Okay. So your time-weighted return is the daily return compounded over time, independent of when you invested your money. So uh, that actually is the best reflection of the quality of the job we did for you. Ah, The money weighted -weighted return weights the return by when you actually invested. So the fact that your money weighted return is worse than your time weighted return means unfortunately you did a poor job of timing the market as to when you made your deposits. Mm. So what I would say to someone in your circumstances, rather than trying to figure out when you should make your deposit, you might be better served by signing up for a recurring deposit because then you're more likely to get the time, the equivalent of the time-weighted return.
1: Yeah, there's a it was an interesting situation. So Johnny and I are, uh, my co-hosts are to- two totally different in- investors because he he adds to his account every single month, kind of dollar cost cost averaging in a reoccurring fashion. But me, I was I uh, had a, a liquidity event, so I had a lump sum, and I couldn't decide whether I wanted to to just invest the lump sum in one tranche or if I wanted to dollar cost average that over, say, twelve months or two years. But I read a couple mm-hmm. articles, and it seemed like it seemed like the best thing to do was just to put it, not try to time it, and just to put it all in in one lump sum, because over time, markets tend to go up. So you're kind of, you could dollar cost average, but that would sort of be like taking out an insurance policy against um, a big downturn. But it seemed like the best thing to do is just put it all in in one lump sum.
2: You know, this is a very tough question to answer. Uh, Unfortunately, you're your lump sum payment happened to have come at a bad time <laughs> in terms of the timing of the market. Now Vanguard has actually published research on this that says that on average you're better off uh, just uh, investing when you can.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, but that's on average. So if you think about on average, that means across all investors, that's the equivalent of dollar cost averaging if you're averaging across all investors. So. They claim there's really no difference, but I think people feel better from a regret minimization standpoint, dollar cost averaging. Mm -hmm. That way you can't look back and say, ah, I just didn't time that right. Right. Because it's it's almost impossible to time the market. And that's why we encourage people not to.
1: Andy, you've been through a lot of great booms and also busts in your lifetime and with all that experience, I was just wondering if you guys have a plan in Wealthfront. Markets right now are good, I assume. When markets are good, everything's quiet at Wealthfront. People are happy. There's not many phone calls. But is there anything that you guys are doing to prepare for a big downturn in the future to kind of help curb human emotions? Because I know from just my experience, all the money I've lost in investing has been you know, based off human emotions and um, and making the, making bad decisions off those emotions.
2: You know, that's one of the biggest misperceptions about us that we've had in our five years. We've had two market corrections. So market correction is defined as a uh, peak to trough loss of more than 10%. And that's a very significant downdraft. On average over the last 50 years, there's usually one correction every three years or so. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, three or four years. So we've had more than the the average number of corrections over the last uh, five year period. And what we have found is that our withdrawals are not at all correlated with market performance, which is what most people in the investment industry experience. This really shocks people that uh, also new accounts are not correlated at all with with the performance of the market, which also shocks people. I remember once talking to a reporter from Index Universe, which was a trade journal that focuses on index investing, and he brought this up to me and said, you know, you don't talk people onto the ledge, so you don't have to talk them off the ledge. Perhaps financial advisors have to talk people off the ledge because they talk them onto it by selling them... standard products. So I'm not sure if it's that. I'm not sure if it's the fact that if you invest with us, you're pre uh, you're oriented toward passive investing. And if you're oriented toward passive investing, you know, you can't outperform the market. So you don't try to to time it. Our withdrawals are really most correlated with home purchases and car purchases. Mm. Because our the average age of our clients is only 32, uh, the only reason they withdraw is for a significant payment or expenditure. It has we actually published the data on this in another blog post to show our withdrawals are not at all correlated with market. Now, to be fair, a bad market tends to affect add-on deposits from our existing clients. That people tend to hit the brakes on adding more to their accounts when the markets perform poorly. And then when the markets perform better, they tend to add more to their accounts, which they shouldn't do. They'd probably be far better served just signing up for a recurring deposit.
1: Right. And I wonder if, are you getting a lot of demand from millennials who have never actually had an advisor before and maybe it's their first crack at investing? And, uh, because I would think this would be a massively, uh, Massively appealing to the millennial class, who's a little bit more technically oriented, maybe a little bit more risk-reverse, uh, risk adverse.
2: Well, you're a millennial. Yes, barely, so
1: barely, barely.
2: <laughs> well, actually, I think millennials go up to thirty-seven. I really hate yeah. to class
1: myself as a millennial. They're getting they're getting oh. dogged so hard that, <laughs> by the by the older generation.
2: Well, I have two kids who are millennials. They're twenty-two and twenty-five, and I don't think they're bad. So <laughs> I don't think. I don't think it necessarily means something bad, but our target audience are young people who prefer to get all of their services via software because they really don't enjoy talking to people. Yeah, And so it's the intersection of people who are under 40. So if millennials go up to 37, so it's, it's, it's millennials plus a tiny little bit. So people who much prefer interacting with software to talking to people who generally can't afford the minimums associated with a financial advisor.
1: Andy, do you have any statistics on how much market share robo-advisors, including Wealthfront, have taken from traditional advisories?
2: Well, again, we're not trying to take share from fin- from advisors. Mm-hmm. We're trying to serve the unserved.
3: Clay mm-hmm.
2: like Christensen, who coined uh, the term disruption theory or who coined disruption theory, Uh, refers to this as a new market disruption. We're trying to serve the non-consumers. We're specifically not trying to take people away from advisors. Hey, we're not going to turn them away as, as we're very happy you're a client. And occasionally we do catch them in our net, but our focus is really much more on people who haven't gotten access. Now, I think what we offer is superior to anything an advisor could offer for accounts up to $50 million, but somebody who has $40 million is going to feel better having an account at Goldman Sachs because they can tell their friends at a cocktail party that they use Goldman Sachs. But I'm pretty confident that on a net of fee after tax basis, because you're gonna pay much higher fees and much higher taxes with Goldman, that we're gonna do a better job, but even though we're gonna do a better job, we're not gonna win the $40 million account. Mm
3: Well hopefully
1: in the future, I mean for me that was the that was my big move and i wish I wish I had done it sooner and I don't see any way my my traditional advisor underperformed the market substantially for three and a half years. And plus there was all the fees and plus there was all the misinformation. So when I found you guys, it was like a light switch went off. So I, I would hope and assume that you guys will get a lot more business from traditional advisors, whether whether you're trying to take it or not. I would imagine, like you said, it'll it'll end up in the net uh, in some capacity. Well, and, well, welcome
2: to the open arms. There
1: we go. So, uh, Andy, just in terms of the category, how do you guys try to position yourselves in the industry now or in the future against peers?
2: Well, we are... I think we helped create this category uh, that we prefer calling automated advisors, but I think others call robo-advisors. And uh, we are unique in that we have a software-only approach. Again, for our target client, they much prefer a software-only advisor. But almost everyone else has taken a hybrid approach where you marry an advisor to the software. And I think that that might be more appropriate for someone my age, I'm 58, because baby boomers like talking to someone. But uh, I don't think, but, and it's really hard to tell the difference among all of those players. We're the only ones who have a software-only approach. And because we're software-only, we have focused on delivering radically more features through that software than anybody else. They're trying to make it up with personal conversations. And by the way, we'll appeal to a younger audience and the hybrid approach is going to appeal to an older audience. Mm
1: -hmm. Very cool. Well, Andy, you've been in so many sides of finance from VC to a professor at Stanford, which is awesome, and now automated advisors, aka robo-advisors. What's interesting to you at this point in investing in finance? What keeps you motivated and, and interested to dive into stuff each day?
2: I'm really amazed at how the world seems to be waking up to passive investing of late. That it, you know, it's something that Bert really uncovered 42 years ago when he first published his book.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And yeah. I'm amazed at the wave of articles that I'm now reading about it. It's really quite astounding. To the point that even at the Penn Endowment, we're talking about indexing on one or two of our asset classes. And that's heresy mm-hmm. in the in, in the endowment world, which has really done exceptionally well through active manager selection.
1: Love it. Love it. Well, I think that pretty much sums it up, Andy. I really want to thank you for coming on and sharing your experience and knowledge with us. We definitely appreciate it. And we very much look forward to continuing to invest through the platform. And watch Wealthfront transform the industry and get a lot more of business from traditional advisors, whether you like it or not.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Okay. We'll catch you next time. Thanks again, Andy. And thanks to Kate and Laura and your wonderful staff for setting it up. Our pleasure. Wow.
0: That really answered a ton of questions that I had for my personal account. So I I think people are going to like kind of hearing from the big boss's mouth himself, the CEO, and give them a lot more confidence in, in things like Wealthfront.
1: I liked Andy a lot. I thought that was a good interview. And I just had a warm feeling from him. Like I learned a lot. It was kind of a student to the, te- you know, curious student to the professor style conversation. And I feel like before this episode, we knew a lot about robo advisors because we invest in it and we've talked about the topic a lot. But now I feel like I have a much, much better grasp at what they are now and what they're trying to be in the future.
0: I think one of the biggest surprises was that he is still actively teaching at. Stanford.
1: Yeah. Is that something you would ever want to do? Like, I thought that was really cool and a a great way to balance the day-to-day headaches and stress of running a big fintech company.
0: I think I I would definitely want to teach. One of my goals is actually to teach community college, which is a big turning point in my life. But after I'm I'm kind of all set and done with business. I wouldn't want to do it while running a big company. I think it's it's so many so many places to juggle. But it sounds like mm. he has his stuff together, and and his life and his finances are pretty automated. So I guess he has time for it.
1: Yeah, well said. Well, you know what? We threw him a lot of softballs there for traditional advisors because I've I've gained over the last I would say three years. Yeah. Uh, first initiated by reading Money Master the Game and then starting to look at robo-advisors, I've just kind of gained this distrust for traditional advisors. And I know there's a lot of different categories there. uh, But I guess when I think of traditional advisors, I think of the big banks, Morgan Stanley, UBS. You could kind of go on and on on that list. But I feel like there is no market for them in the future. I mean... Yes, there is now. It's almost like a tobacco company. Like there is, and it might go on for twenty years, but they have got to lose market share every single year. Um, and Andy seemed like you know there's still a market, still a market for them. But I think he was talking a little bit more about active investors versus passive ones, and these kind of big banks that just are told what what funds to to put you in.
0: Yeah, I think he kind of, when he put a ball, ball figure on, he said, if you have $40 million or more, you, you're probably not going to be a wealth fund customer. And I think, he, mm-hmm. you know, in those situations, he's probably correct. Um, if anything, you know, it's those people want to talk to someone. They, they want to try to, to leverage the game and, and try to have some kind of big leg up. But for anyone normal, I will say anyone with less than $40 million, uh, our choices are, either to kind of risk our our money with a traditional advisor pay extra fees or trust something like you know a robo advisor like Wealthfront and to be honest it's i'm actually kind of going back and forth so i you know i'm a both phone customer i have i think about 13 grand uh, in my account right now and i'm putting more in into my sep ira there but I keep getting emails from our, you know, some of our previous guests, like, um, Dave Steiner, uh, David Steiner, who's on episode five saying, you know, Hey, you know, if you, if you just invest, you know, yourself purely in index funds, you, 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 you'll probably end up having, you know, X amount more over your lifetime. And I think he is right in a sense where it's a kind of bigger risk, bigger reward. Um, things like bonds, you know, are, are bought through my wealth fund account, which I don't necessarily, you know, really want to buy. Uh, but there's no option to, to opt out of it. And I think we've talked about it in previous episodes. I think the reason why wealth fund does it is they kind of want to play it safe and diversify. They don't want their, their customers losing money in the next big downturn. Uh, they want people to, to always have positive gains, even if, you know, it's not a hundred percent in US stocks and, and, and riskier.
1: Yeah. So I to- totally agree with that. You know, it, it, time will really tell. So I, I can definitely see the standpoint and the view and perspective of the do-it-yourself investors. And I can also see the beauty in robo-advisors. And the only reason I have that perspective is because I'm doing both. Um, the time horizon right now is too short. It's only been about a year, year and a half i have had both accounts. Right now, my Wealthfront account is beating my do-it-yourself accounts, both in E-Trade in Vanguard. Next year, will it be the same? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, but I can definitely see how do-it-yourself investors can say saving that you know, 10, 15 basis points can add up to a lot of time, uh, a lot of money over time. But I also, on that episode, we got in deep in tax loss harvesting and I was sitting there looking at the $10,000 that had been tax loss harvested in my account. And what was the the fee on that? You know, It was 1-8th, Andy said. And we calculated during the episode. So I think the value add stuff that they're doing and the fact that you don't have to think about Wealthfront and saving that peace of mind is a big, big value add. Would I put all of my money into Wealthfront? Probably not. But I'm definitely happy that I have a portion of my stock bonds uh, allocation in there.
0: So I, I looked at the the tax loss harvesting as well. And at first, I was thinking like, oh, is this just kind of like... um. You know, a gimmick or something, but it makes sense the the, the way that they, they're doing it, and I do see the benefit in it, especially kind of over time. Especially if the market's more volatile, and those tax savings will be a bit higher. I think it's mm-hmm. you know it's in their best interest to to put the big number first, but like you know, if your tax loss harvest says a thousand dollars, that doesn't mean that you've saved a thousand dollars. That means you you've you've saved. You know, what, maybe let's say 40% of that thousand dollars, because that's what you would have paid in taxes. Um, and it was cool. I think it was really cool that Andy pointed that out, you know, really quickly, just let people know. I think that's kind of a, a big benefit of people listening to this episode and kind of hearing the kind of finer details from the, the, you know, the, the big boss's mouth himself. So we understand what these things mean. Cause when we logged our account, it looks like I, you know, harvested $213. So. In my mind, I assume I saved two hundred and thirteen dollars. But it also makes sense from their point of view that they don't know what my specific tax, you know, bracket is. So mm-hmm. in you know, they can say two hundred and thirteen dollars is the total amount and then you saved whatever taxes you would have paid on that on the lesser amount.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean for me right now, one of the things that is a dagger each year in me is taxes until I get a bit a, a better international solution and and uh, really start understanding my new revenue streams. So psychologically, if I can find some ways to sh- shed taxes uh, in a smart way, in an automated way, I'm all about it. Um, I think one other thing that was pretty cool that we talked about on this episode, which is kind of a throwback from a re- uh, previous episode that we had with William Bernstein, which was about lump sum versus dollar cost average investing. So, Johnny, you and I are essentially two different types of investors when it comes to you know our, uh, our stock and index investments. You're more of a dollar cost averager because you're investing each month. And I'm more of a lump sum investor because I put money in three or four years ago and haven't really added any money to it since. Uh, so it was pretty cool to hear his thoughts on it, which kind of concluded that a lot of studies have been, been put on the subject, a lot of money allocated to figuring out the best way to do it. And it seems like because markets go up over time, you are better off putting in a lump sum. Let's just say you, you get uh, X amount of money today you're deciding whether to put it all in the market today or put it all in over 12 months. Statistically, you'd be better off putting it in all at once as early as possible. But in many markets in the past, you'd be better off dollar cost averaging. So it's just uh, it's personal preference, but statistically, you'd be better off putting it all in as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, that was really interesting. But remember, as Andy kind of pointed out, that statistically overall, people are better uh, putting it in at once. But there's also the, the people that kind of get screwed a little bit um you know putting it in at the wrong time that that bring up the people that put in the right time so i think from a very selfish point of view i'd almost rather not have that chance of me myself you know putting in uh, at the wrong time even though the greater good or like the greater amount of people might be better off i think what Mm -hmm. i would do if i got a big lump sum is i would still dollar cost average but Maybe instead of waiting a whole year to put the money in, maybe I might do it over six months.
1: Yeah. Well, I think my account was the perfect reflection of that perspective, Johnny, because if I had taken your strategy, my account would have probably outperformed me putting in as a lump sum, which uh, Andy was pointing out. So, yeah, personal preferences. And if you're in that situation in the future, it's a good problem to have. But what's really cool about, about Wealthfront is they have
0: a very easy comparison that you could take a look And now that Andy's actually explained to us what it actually means, uh, in, you know, kind of layman terms, I can log my account and I can see, okay, time rated return means, uh, how basically Wealthfront uh, did for during, during that time. Money rated Mm -hmm. return means how I personally did. So you could, you could technically ignore the time rated return and just look at money rated return to see what you actually made. But what is cool is you can compare the two and say, okay, is you know, did I mess up by putting my money in at the wrong time, um, or did I get unlucky versus what the almost kind of the standard or the par was. So the easier way to think about that is time rate of return is you know, basically the par and the money rate of return is what you actually got.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious
0: with yours, what what is higher, your, your money weighted return or the par, which is the time?
1: So my time weighted return is now 20, about 23% and my money weighted return is 17%, which means that Wealthfront, the account and the portfolio allocation did better than my money timing or my market timing. So if I had put, if I'd put the money all in at the very beginning of when I started my Wealthfront account, it would have outperformed by about five uh, percentage points, which is very significant uh, for the money that I have in the account. But because I put a little bit of money in first to try it and then put in a lump sum, I think maybe three or four months later, then I I put in that lump of money at a time that was less good for my account. Okay. And I think that's really
0: good information to have, and and for everyone's gonna be a little bit different. So logging your accounts, Uh, if you guys haven't made a Wealthfront account, you can check it out at investingaboss.com/slash/wealthfront, and then that way when you guys start investing, you guys can you know have the par, which I I think is cool. I mean, I I think there's a lot of things that they they do to kind of you know, I don't want to say make the numbers look. You know, even better. But things like the the percentage that's not for, let's say, that doesn't default on this year. I can take a look at what my actual numbers were for 2017, and for that it'll be 6.22%. Uh, you know, which is nice growth. But it defaults at all time, which is kind of cool. It's almost kind of like um, it makes us feel better because we're like, oh, okay, you know, I could see my account has grown 15%, um, which it has. But I think most of the time people just see, you know, what the yearly growth is.
1: Yeah, for sure. So that was a really awesome episode. Thanks so much to Andy Rockcliffe and his team uh for setting it up and coming on the show. Lots to learn from that. And uh, not sure I'm doing anything different. How about you, Johnny?
0: So I'm waiting for my tax advisor to to give me back my my returns for this year. I know returns it to um a few days ago, but uh she assured me that because I am not living in the US that I automatically get a, uh, another month to file. Um, so hopefully she's right about that. And as soon as I find out how much I actually owe, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a bunch of money into my SEP IRA and I'm going to do it through Wealthfront. And I know, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people that have told me like, Oh, you know, just buy, you know, buy it through Vanguard, buy it through Vanguard. But to be honest, it's such a pain in the butt for me to buy. Or set up a separate, while overseas. I'm, I'm currently in freaking, um, Bali and I was in Komodo Kimo- all last week and it mm-hmm. was just really difficult to be able to manage these things overseas. I'd rather just, you know, have my money go into Wealthfront where I know it's technology first and I know that wherever I am in the world, I'm, I'm able to not only deposit money, but log in my accounts and, you know, have kind of very ease of access without mailing things back and forth. So. Um, I would definitely be putting more money into my IRA through Wealthfront this
1: year. So to summarize the episode, who do you think robo advisors and Wealthfront would be good for? Or a couple, couple different people that might be good for?
0: I think for anyone who knows that they're either going to forget to put money in, or that they're going to get emotional every month when they, you know, log in and they see that you know <clears throat> the prices of whatever their funds are are either too high or too, or too low, and then. Either panic and not buy anything, or you don't know, want to sell, or um, think it's too high, and not want to buy. So for for me currently, I'm putting three thousand dollars into my Va- Vanguard index funds every month, but it requires me to physically log in and then you know click buy. Versus with Wealthfront, there's repeating deposits where you can just have it just do it for you. I think that is a huge benefit because it takes the human emotion, and the human error out of it. Uh, I think it's that's great for for everyone.
1: Yeah, I agree. Totally. I learning more and more about robo advisors and through this episode, learning more about who their, 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 uh, average demographic is 32 year olds, long-term passive investors you know i think that makes sense for a lot of people that are age younger people that want to start investing in the markets in a smart tax efficient way and are not worried about the ups and downs are not worried you know worried about checking the account every six months or even even at more frequent intervals i think it makes a great option for the future
0: yeah definitely so definitely check them out and uh thanks again to everyone who has been leaving these amazing five-star reviews of the podcasts on iTunes. You guys are the reason why we're able to get these big name CEOs of companies like Wealthfront on the show. Uh so this week I want to thank and acknowledge we have Mill B. Uh Mill said, one of the best personal finance podcasts, five stars. These guys are so much fun to listen to, bring on top notch to guests and bring down bring a down to earth quality to the podcast. Everything they talk about is doable by regular people. So many new ideas I would not have known about without these guys. One of my top three podcasts I look forward to every week. And that's it. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode and we will talk to all of you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Like Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at bestlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If
1: you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next
3: week.